Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Malcolm Purinton to tell us all about his book titled Globalization in a Glass, The Rise of Pilsner Beer Through Technology, Taste and Empire, uh, just published from Bloomsbury. This is, as the title suggests, examining the spread of Pilsner beer from its inception to really help us understand uh, the development in terms of business, the development in terms of technology, the development in terms of consumer taste was not sort of some preordained thing um, and very much should be understood within the context of globalization, within the context of empire um, and reliant on all sorts of interesting things, competition between Britain and Germany, uh, technological innovations, business practices, all sorts of interesting things that help us understand why Pilsner beer is so incredibly popular and so incredibly prevalent. So Malcolm, thank you for being on the podcast to tell us all about it. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Before we dive into all of the interesting bits of the book, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Oh, certainly. Uh, I am a assistant teaching professor at Northeastern University in Boston, uh, and I started this book uh, originally as part of my dissertation process for my doctorate, and that came after years of being interested in beer, both, you know, starting in college, as most people do, uh, but then as a home brewer, and then as a kind of freelance beer journalist. And then the dissertation work just kind of took over and took me all over the world and kind of realized, even though there were so many books about beer, uh, especially as the craft beer revolution spread all over the world, that no one had actually written about what that revolution was against, which was that large, light, you know, light golden lager that you see, as you said, very prevalent across the entire globe. And so I decided to dive into that using my research, looking at empire, looking at migration and technology, and then seeing how and why one specific style, given about 13,000 years of history of beer, that that one style has continued to dominate today. So I think before we get into understanding how that dominance happened, um, it would be helpful, as you do in the book, to kind of give us a brief background on some of the things that we need to know. Um, And of course, one thing becoming dominant, as you said, there's so many thousands of years of beer history, there's not just one type, there are a whole bunch of types. Um, And we need to know at least some about the differences to kind of have context, I suppose, for why it's so fascinating that one has become so prevalent. So could you take us through, please, the key differences between ale and lager and their production methods in the sort of pre-rise of the Pilsner, the 19th century? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, one of the fastest, fascinating things about Pilsner is that it is such a recent phenomenon, an absolutely recent style that needed a whole lot to actually occur. And basically, 
if we look at this, you know, over 10,000 years of history, nearly all of that beer was an ale. So you can kind of separate all beer into two categories based on the type of yeast that's being used for the fermentation to develop, to create the alcohol. Uh, so basically yeast, a single-celled organism, uh, ingests sugars and then, you know, releases carbon dioxide and ethyl alcohol. Um, and what you needed to do with an ale, I mean, if we look at going into the 18th century and we start seeing the industrialization of a brewing industry here uh, across Europe, um, we see ale as being something that is relatively easy to make and quite easy, quite fast of a process. So ale yeast ferments at a higher temperature than lager yeast. Uh, it also ferments at the top of a fermentation vessel. So what that yeast is going to be doing is that it's going to be fermenting around 70 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit at the top of that vessel, it's going to take about one week for a full batch of beer to be fully fermented and basically ready to sell, uh, depending on you know what type of level of production you're going to be doing. While on the other hand, a lager yeast is going to be fermenting much lower, about 20 degrees colder, around 50, 55 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, but then also fermenting at the bottom of the fermentation vessel. And that fermentation at a colder temperature uh, needs much longer period of time to ferment. So instead of one week, like an ale, it'll take up to three weeks or so for that to happen. And then you have the lagering process. So lager, meaning to store in German, is the process by which after the original fermentation, that beer is then kept at a temperature around freezing uh, for three to six months. And at which point it is then ready to be ready be sold to the public. So these are two very different production methods, needing many, you know, much larger space requirements for the lager and a much more rapid just out to the customer for the ales. So why a beer that took much longer needed a lot more capital investment and space and technology and time and temperature control became the dominant beer for the world? It's, uh, it's quite a story. And I think that that's obviously uh, what we want to get into. Um, so in a lot of ways, I read this book as kind of a tale of two parts or sort of there were there were parallel strands, right? There's the business practices aspect. There's the technological aspect. And both of them, I really appreciated kind of you didn't, but you, you made it very clear, as you said, that many things needed to happen for the dominance of Pilsner. And um, it wasn't just kind of one magical breakthrough. So I guess, could you take us through the kind of first the technology, then the business of British dominance, and then we'll move into sort of how did Germany overtake on both of these tracks? Um, so maybe starting with British technology to become leaders in the beer brewing field? Oh, absolutely. And this ties us into larger processes. Uh, we're looking at the industrial, the industrial Revolution, you know, beginning around like 1750 uh, in England. And through the late latter half of the 18th century, we're seeing England and kind of like the United Kingdom industrializing, uh, being the very first one to utilize steam technology. And the brewing industry is one of many industries that are industrializing at this time. And the brewers are taking advantage of this. You know, they're utilizing this new steam technology with pumps to move their, their beers around, but they're also using some of the new innovations, such as a thermometer. Uh, to be able to understand, you know, what is the exact temperature of this boil, of this liquid that we're going to be using to extract the sugars from the cereal grains, and then also the hydrometer, 
the hydrometer being used, or also known as a saccharometer, basically kind of measures the amount of fermentable sugar in that potential alcohol. So before you add the yeast, before the fermentation occurs, you can see just how much sugar is there. And then you can also find out how much is not left after the fermentation. So then you can that tell exactly how strong that beer is. And all these brewers are not just using those, which lead to a much more consistent beer. And this is something that is really quite a game changer because consistency is really king. I mean, even today, if you're going to be going into, you know, going into a store for a beer and you want your favorite beer and you are looking for that label because you know exactly how that's going to taste. And this is a relatively recent phenomenon because you need to have that technology to be able to create a consistent product. And British brewers were the very first ones to be able to create a relatively consistent product over and over and over, you know, with their different styles of beer, their brown ales, their big porters. And they start investing in that technology, investing in creating larger and larger barrels, you know, going up to like 10,000 gallon wooden barrels to be able to, you know, ferment that beer and store that beer. Uh, and then, you know, also distribute it, you know, export it around England, around the colonies, whether it's to the American colonies or to India and so forth, utilizing all of these new ways to really buy, I mean, into the early 19th century, the mid 19th century, they are the top in the world for quantity and quality. You know, they're able to utilize that technology and all of their new you know, ways of kind of creating larger and larger firms. I mean, these people are not just brewers, like a blue collar class. They are, you know, alongside the bankers in terms of the business people of London. Like they are making money, lots and lots of money. They're turning around and investing it further and further in this industrialization. Now, in comparison, if we look at the technology that's going on on continental Europe at the same time, they're quite far behind. I mean, we don't see that kind of secondary, you know, second industrial revolution coming about until, like, not until the early 19th century, where you start seeing the industrial processes and technologies spreading, you know, in the lowlands of like the Netherlands and Belgium into France and then the German lands and onwards and onwards on a slow march to the east. And the beers that are being produced are not consistent. They are ales for the most part as well, but they don't have thermometers. They don't have hydrometers. They don't understand how to make new types of malt that the, uh, you know, with a pale malt instead of everything being brown and dark. The British are the first ones to kind of create new malting techniques, to create grains that can then develop into a nice lighter colored type of liquid. And so the continental brewers are behind going all the way into like the 1830s, 1840s, when they're able to start kind of adopting uh, through some industrial espionage, um, the techniques that the British had already been doing for, you know, fifth, like over half a century. So it's a new type of way that they're kind of able to latch on to that. Now that process is actually, it's a, it's a funny little story because you have you're looking at not just these new technologies and how it's adopted, but then also the strategies of how do you start a brewery? How do you run a brewery? And all the firms in England are family-owned firms. Like their investment capital is coming from family members and people that they know in their social circuits, uh, you know, like those bankers and so on of the high society. And in kind of Europe, you know, also family-owned, but 
on a much smaller scale. I mean, these breweries are not looking to export. They're just kind of the small local village breweries for the local population for the most part. And in order to become a brewer in England, you're going to be working your way up through a firm. Like you're going to start off, you know, usually the management is going to be coming into by like the sons of the owners and they will, you know, learn some of the trade of making a beer, but they're also going to be learning kind of from their fathers, how to run a brewery. And they're all going to be stuck within that same brewing firm. You know, whether that is, you know, the Bass Company or Truman and all stuff, all these different people. And on continental Europe, if you want to be working in a brewery, you're going to be working in your family's brewery, but you will be sent out as an apprentice, not just apprenticing within that brewery, but you're going to be working, you're going to be traveling across continental Europe. You're going to be visiting lots of different breweries all over the place, learning what other people are doing, kind of sharing that knowledge that they do have. And in the 1830s, there are two sons of brewers that are going to be inheriting their family's brews. There's Anton Dreyer from Schwedkat Brewing Company, just north of Austria. And then there's, there's Gabriel Settlemeyer Jr., who is going to be inheriting from his father, the senior, from Spaten Brewing Company. They meet up while they're doing all these travels, and they go to England in the 1830s because they're like, we want to learn the best ways of doing brewing today, and England is the best. So they go there, they're visiting all these breweries, and the brewers are like, yeah, you know, you can have some samples or something, but, you know, they are not going to be sharing any of their knowledge at all. I mean, even their books are all in its own type of secret code. So the brewers are the only ones that kind of know how this works, and so that no one can kind of come in off the street and steal any of that knowledge on how to make that type of malt, how to make that type of specific beer, and so on. And so Anton Dreyer and Gabriel Sittelmeyer and another friend of them at Ferris, they take a pipe, they paint it brown, they put a valve on the bottom, they start kind of secretly taking you know, samples of the beer um, at various points in the process of becoming beer from these different breweries. They buy a hydrometer they've just learned about, and they start testing it all, and they learn how, through that, how to make a light pale malt. So they can start making lighter beers. They go back to Europe. Initially, they think they might kind of keep it secretive as well, but within just a few years, they're like, no, no, we're going to share this. And so Anton Dreyer comes up with a nice kind of amber lager, and the Spaten Brewing Company under Gabriel Sittelmeyer Jr. really catapults to fame across the rest of the 19th century because they're able to kind of utilize that technology, start producing a more consistent style of beer. And also, Spot and Brewing Company, like Gabriel Sittemeyer Sr., was actually one of the first ones to really kind of start, you know, lagering beer. Like, that was one of the early things in Bavaria to start kind of aging that beer for longer periods of time. So we're seeing a transition, a slow one, over really a hundred years of industrialization of the brewing industry in England going through into the industrialization of brewing on the continent. Hmm. But of course, once it starts moving over to the continent, um, then the pace seems to pick up rather a lot. Um, so could you tell us maybe a bit more now that some of this technology has moved over, kind of what then progressed technologically and in terms of business strategy in these continental breweries? Oh, absolutely. I'm there. So I should kind of get to exactly the point of the Pilsner because also, unlike, say, the Porter or India Pale Ale or you know, other clearly defined uh, now styles of beer, the Pilsner, we have an actual date of its original brewing and release to the public. 
in a very specific location too. Because for the porter, there's a number of kind of you know different urban legends and so on that the porter comes from, you know, various things. You know, some some of them, these stories have some of them been proven completely wrong. Like this idea that you'd be mixing three different threads of beer and it comes from this one like tap room or you know it's and it's named after like the porters who are carrying beer around London. That one's actually mostly true, but we don't have an origin origin date or location or any of these types of things. And with the Pilsner, well basically this this kind of begins in Pilsen because so in the city of Pilsen, currently part of like Czech Republic and at that point part of the Austrian Empire, they were having a difficulty in beer in that same point in time that Anton and Gabriel are traveling around when a beer tester arrives and says their beer is terrible, they have to pour it all out. And so the town like burgers, the market men all decide we are going to invest in making a very good brewery in the late 1830s. And they hire a brewer, this guy, Joseph Grohl, who comes in, they hire an architect to travel around Europe to come back with a design for the most modern type of brewery. And 1842, Grohl combines some of that new technology of, you know, using a lighter colored grain, uh, lighter colored malt uh, for the beer, local hops, Lagering techniques that have been, you know, distributed around through the different brewers in, you know, kind of Bavarian area, and produces the very first Pilsner in Pilsen in 1842, the fall of 1842, because the Pilsner that name itself means from Pilsen that er on the end, so it's named after a specific location, specific year, specific place, and that's our very first light golden lager. We already have brown lagers, you know, box. We've got amber lagers. We've got a nice kind of reddish Viennese lager from Anton Dreyer. Soon after that, um, when he transitions from ale to lager himself. And when that Pilsner comes about 1842, within four years, you're having breweries producing Pilsner in Prague. But they're not calling it like Prager or Praha. They are calling it a Pilsner. And in Bavaria, you're starting to see Pilsners being produced, but they're not called Bavarian or like, you know, Mun- like München. They're being called Pilsners. So it's like this radical, weird thing, because at that point, you also have some of the new technologies of transportation. You are seeing railroads kind of starting, they're crisscrossing across Europe. So people are able to hear of new styles of beer as well as other types of news much faster. And so the styles, the you know what people are looking forward to, what the news that they're hearing, is all being transported much faster. And so along those rail routes, you know, over the 1840s, 1850s, news of this type of beer starts passing around, and people all start utilizing those new malting techniques to create a light golden lager, and they're all calling it you know a pils, a pilsner, and they start you know all these other derivatives, so like a hellas lager, you know. Everything, and my per, my point of view is that any other light golden lager is being, you know, coming from that very first one, that first original piece of the story. So they're sharing that new knowledge. They are working together. You start seeing different, you know, brewing groups formate, like forming in the 1860s, 1870s, along with the formation of journals, industry journals, um, whether you are in England or United States or Austria or Germany. People are starting to produce these industry journals for brewers that will talk about the new technologies. They'll talk about the new styles and start listing all of the brand new companies that are all producing beer. 
And they're also deciding to start producing that beer on a larger scale and start setting up their breweries next to railroads so they can more easily transport their beer from their town, their city, to ports in Bremen and Hamburg and other areas, or just across the rail lines going to you know Alsace and Lorraine, whether that's France or German, different points in the 19th century. And so it's the style, it's technology, it's the sharing of knowledge by these continental brewers, all kind of helping promote in the mid-19th century the dissemination of this specific style of beer along with the technology and the knowledge. Hmm. Very interesting combination um, to think about how all those things sort of come together. And as you said, the name is so indicative of these changes. So it makes a ton of sense to sort of trace that. Um, Were there any particular sort of business practices that these brewing companies were using that was different in any way? Or kind of was the sort of the non-beer production newness of it around more things like railway lines and advertisements? Well, you have very different approaches to brewing industries. Uh, in, like, in the beginning of the second half of the 19th century, uh, because the British have been, well, I mean, they were top in the world for their, for their beer, uh, and just through and through. And so they kind of held on to the strategies that they'd, also, they'd already developed in the late 18th century, which is those family-owned businesses. And one thing that's not, you know, you might be, you might inherit, you know, eye color, hair color, height um, from your parents, but the skill of being a good manager is not exactly one of those traits. And so some of these breweries are, you know, failing in different regards or excelling in other ways, but it's all going to be tied to the family and relatives and the investment's going to be continuing within those places. And they, in, in the British and in, in Great Britain and in the UK, you start, you know, they're focusing a lot on those family firms and their strategy is going to be more so to control how much consumption their, their beer is getting in their domestic markets. And so what they're doing is developing a tied house trade. It's something you'll start seeing in all the British co- like companies, as, uh, colonies as well. You know, in Australia, for instance, where basically the brewery is going to buy up all of the pubs and taverns all around so that those places will only be able to sell that their brewery's beer. So it's kind of, you know, a guaranteed segment of the population, guaranteed geographic area where their beer is going to be the only choice at all. Then on the continent, you start seeing these breweries looking at new forms of investment uh, and starting this new idea of like a limited liability company where you can invest a whole lot of money, but your liability is very limited, hence the name where you're not going to be losing everything if the company goes under. So this is something that's going to really promote investment. And so these breweries aren't just kind of a family-owned brewery. They're becoming investment opportunities where you're seeing outside investors who are not part of the brewing industry, not part of a family connection directly to these brewers or these owners who are deciding to start a brewery. And seeing these LLCs spreading for all of these different companies that happen to be breweries across Central Europe. And 
at the same moment in time, you're seeing a brand new idea of also who is going to run a company. While the British are going to continue to focus on, you know, their family is going to be running the company. Um, <laughs> let's look at, you know, this TV show Succession. Uh, you know, it's going to be, you know, who's going to be running this, this big private company. And regardless of whether or not they have any managerial skills whatsoever, while the managerial revolution that's coming, you know, really in the United States, it's also happening in continental Europe, where you're seeing professional managers and middlemen, like bureaucrats coming in to kind of run these companies. Like these are professional business people who are looking at how does investment work? Where can we move money around to enhance, you know, the amount of money that's being produced for the shareholders, for those investors. Uh, And then, you know, pointing to new, perhaps more efficient ways of production, of distribution, you know, looking at where, where the money is moving in a way that a single owner, a single family of owners won't really have, they won't have the same eyes to that investment of what's going on. Or, you know, they also don't need the same type of return when you have a lot of outside investors as well. So very different business acumen and decisions for how to even just run a company. And the brewing industry is just one of a number of different industries that are doing this exact same type of thing in that latter half of the 19th century. Hmm. You've mentioned colonies, and of course, the title of the book talks about empire. So I'd like to sort of expand our focus a little bit further um, and ask you about what role German migration played in the spread of German-style beer. Yeah, I mean, having a global style of beer doesn't doesn't start in just one area for, you know, and people hearing about it, say, in Chile. This is, it's tied to those greater movements of history. Um, which really kind of enhances the narrative of this wonderful, wonderful beer style. So in the 1840s, 48, uh, really, you have a number of revolutions occurring across continental Europe, uh, basically kind of over trying to overthrow the remnants of the old regimes of kind of the monarchs uh, of, of the time prior to, you know, that existed prior to the Napoleonic era when Napoleon conquers everything and kind of sets up his own, his own people around. And these revolutions, well, I mean, it causes a lot of havoc. So you have a lot of out-migration coming from Germany. And a lot of those Germans, you know, they're leaving in the 1848 or in the, or in the you know, 1850s, and they're going all over the place. I mean, a lot of them come to the United States uh, where, you know, if they don't stay on the East Coast, they're going to head to St. Louis. They're going to head to Milwaukee. And they're going to have names like Anheuser and Bush and Pabst and Schlitz that all become major brewers. But they're not just doing that. They are also traveling along the Mosquito Coast, you know, along Central America. Uh, you're seeing them also land in Argentina, Brazil, Chile, across South America as well. And that's all, you know, the middle of the 19th century. We're seeing these Germans, and they're not just kind of setting up on their own in these areas. They are being supported by different German groups uh, for kind of for settlement in these areas. They're setting up their own diasporic communities. And I mean, the very first, very first lager that's produced in the United States is in Philadelphia. And it's, of course, a German immigrant in, an, in a neighborhood that is full of Germans. And basically, they're looking at 
setting up their own breweries. And they're going to do that in the United States. They're going to be doing that in Central and South America. They're going to do this, you know, later on in the 19th century, we see like the era of high imperialism. They're going to be setting up breweries for their local production. And that's going to kind of spill over to the broader population. And they're all going to be making that light golden lager. They're all going to be making that pilsner. You know, they'll be using, utilizing different you know, ingredients that are around. So you can have an American adjunct lager utilizing some rice and some corn in the United States. Because you know, malt you know, from barley is going to be a bit more expensive depending on where you are. And it's also a way for these areas, for all of these, you know, these diasporas to have a connection to their culture you know, through their beer. Something that is very close to their hearts and their bellies. And it's going to be something that's going to be very important for them to have. So it's going to be, clo- you know, tying themselves to the metropole, to their, you know, jumping off point for the out-migration. And then we see in the latter half of the 19th, like latter quarter of the 19th century, after, you know, the Berlin Conference in, in, in Berlin, of course, uh, in 1884, 1885, we're seeing the scramble for Africa, where all the European empires of you know Britain and France and Germany, you know, really dividing up the continent of Africa. You know, the British are already in India and in the subcontinent, uh, the French are already in, you know, spreading across Indochina, you know, for like Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. Uh, the British are already in Australia, they're working their way in South Africa. And the Germans, they set up in Southeast Africa, East Africa, and also Shanghai, China. And all of those spaces they are going to be setting up their own breweries as rapidly as possible. And you can have support from the government to be able to also send lots of beer. One of the things that the German government is doing at the end of the 19th century is subsidizing uh, steamships. But the steamships to the, all of these different colonies have to be full in order to receive the support from the federal government. And so these ship owners are, okay, we need to fill up this boat we have to make sure we're filling up with something that's guaranteed to sell wherever we go into port. And well, beer is a great thing. It's always going to be sold. It doesn't really matter. So they're going to show up at all of these different ports and all of that beer is going to empty their cargo so they can fill it up with raw materials, whatever is in the, in the different colonies and ports, and then bring it all the way back to Germany. So the beer is going to be spreading along all of these imperial trade routes, all of these different diaspora communities across the world and that Pilsner style, that light golden lager is going to be the style that's going to just dominate in these areas by the turn of the 20th century. So spreading through diaspora communities obviously makes a ton of sense, right? As you spoke about, it's you already have the knowledge that this thing exists. You probably already have, or you might have some skills. There's the kind of community identity element and there's all these trade routes. But how does German-style beer get entrenched not just in German communities around the world, but in British colonies? Ah, yes, it's such, such a conundrum. When, when I started this um, about a decade ago um, as my dissertation, I, I was looking at the British Empire because my advisor happened to be a British Empire historian. So I was like, okay, this is where I'm kind of going to be focusing. And... That was the biggest question. Why is it when the British, at the turn of the 20th century, they're ruling over a quarter of the world's landmass, 70% of the world's population, and people are not drinking British beer? I mean, that is like, it's 
in all the brewing literature, like all of these different brewers and beer writers are talking about just, you know, British beer is the best. Everyone is drinking the British ales. Like there's no way, you know, the sun's not setting on the British empire and everyone you think would be drinking British beer. It's the national drink. So why, why, why in the world? So that is also a piece of looking at some of that migration, but also looking outside of just a binary of colony and metropole. It's not just like London and Cape Town. It's not just, you know, this one connection between a colony and where it's coming from. It is about how all of these different colonies, whether it's British, French, German, Belgian, so on, they're all right next to colonies of other empires. And those are very porous borders. Even though they look like straight lines on a map, completely ignoring any geographic, you know, <laughs> differences, um, or linguistic ones for that matter, of the indigenous groups, uh, their beer is going to be trans, it's going to be moving between those different areas. But you're also looking at, say, let's look at South Africa, for instance. Um, in South Africa and Cape Town, the major brewer is this guy, Olsen, uh, who is Norwegian by ancestry, He'd come from from Scandinavia, set up his own ale brewery. He's got a British-trained brewer. He's got English-made equipment, all of this stuff. But at the end of the 19th century, you have these different South African wars between the British and the Afrikaners, um, the original European settlers, uh, because in the Afrikaner lands, they had first found diamonds, the Kimberley mines, then they find gold, (laughs) lots and lots of gold uh, in the Transvaal area. And it's not going to be just local Afrikaners or British settlers. It's going to be lots of Europeans. Everyone's going to be coming to mine this gold and control these mines. So that includes a lot of continental Europeans coming to this area. And you have these two British guys uh, who set up their own, have kind of set up their own kind of brewery uh, along the coast in the Natal, and they start moving inwards to Johannesburg. Uh, that develops around the Transvaal, and they buy up a brewery, small one, this husband-wife operation called Castle Brewing, and they form South African Breweries Limited, an LLC, with funding from the city of London. You know, kind of like the Wall Street of England, right? And they are going to produce a light golden lager, Castle Lager, for the population that's there because they want to be able to sell their beer, and that population wants that light golden lager they are coming from different areas around the world they want that specific style and it's gaining popularity if you look at shanghai and china with the german migrations there with the colony you know they found Qingdao, and that is a light golden lager brewery this is also going to be happening in japan so in japan we have you know controlled ports for all outside trade you know, controlled by the emperor, controlled by by the kingdom. And, well, I mean, it's going to be British, it's going to be French, it's going to be American, it's going to be everybody. And they try to keep that as tight of a border as possible, but people start, you know, the Japanese population starts enjoying the beer that's also available. You know, it's very different um, from the sake that's available, that's being made. And so the Japanese government is like, okay, listen, if we're going to start brewing beer, we're going to have one style and we're going to make it, we're going to make it perfectly. And it's going to be the best in the world. And they decide that the German light golden lagers are going to be the style that they want. And so you have Sapporo, you have Kirin, and they're going to start as 
light golden lager breweries with <laughs> German ingredients, with German brewers, straight through. And they actually become the dominant brewing industry for the Pacific. So the Indian market of the British, they become dominated by World War I by Japanese light golden lagers. Um, the Australians, British settlers, they, I mean, really, by the 1860s, 1870s, you start seeing a lot of English brewers. They're rather far away from the metropole. They are going to utilize some of that new mechanized refrigeration to be able to produce their light golden lagers because that's what we want. That's what they want. Some of the early ice trade for brewers is coming, you know, coming from the Boston uh, region of the United States. They're sending ice from the Boston area all the way to Australia, and that's being used for brewing a lot of times. So all of these British colonies and areas of British settlers, they are really enjoying this style of beer because if you look at it in comparison to the British ales that are popular at the time, it holds a lot of different characteristics that these consumers like a lot more mm. than those British ales. So that's kind of the obvious question, right? Why did people want this beer so much? What was so attractive about it? Um, it wasn't obviously just about being available. Why was this the first global beer in terms of taste? It, I mean, it tasted better. It was also cheaper. People could buy, you know, economies of scale, they're able to all this investment. But the, it's not just the taste, it's how it looks, it's the mouthfeel, um, when, when you have it on your tongue. It's, there's a lot wrapped up in studies of taste, and studies of food, and studies of furniture, I, because there's status that gets wrapped up in the aesthetic beauty that is you know, very subjective. And as I was going through the archives and going through the literature, I was noticing the descriptions, the descriptors that beer consumers, whether they're in Australia, whether they're in Austria, whether they are in London, all over the world, they're using the same descriptions to compare these light golden lagers, these pilsners, with the beer they're getting from Great Britain. Now, if you have bottles of beer or kegs of beer arriving in, let's say, British Honduras, present-day Belize. Uh, you know, it's very, you know, if when you leave someplace, you tend to be more loyal, almost. Uh, kind of like a hyper-nationalism when you leave somewhere to this new colony or this new area. And you're trying to hold some type of connection to that space. But the beer that's it's arriving all the way in Central America is, well, it's full of sediment. Uh, the British brewers who have been doing the same thing for over a hundred years, they aren't, you know, having that one week of fermentation. They're not allowing it to settle very long. They don't have any, you know, what they use today of bright tanks to kind of let it age. And that sediment in all these bottles, basically you can't drink like the last, like, I don't know, say two inches, four centimeters of that beer. You basically have to pour it out. It's also very strong. Like the beers coming from England are, at you know, six, eight percent alcohol, like you're going to have a few, and you're going to, well, they called it very heady beer. It's going to be something you're going to be feeling the intoxication effects quite quickly. So you're not going to be able to have a long session of kind of hang out. Uh, and in comparison, if you look at the light golden lagers, these are going to be, you know, around three, four percent alcohol. The British beer writers themselves are writing about going to Austria uh, and going to Vienna and just being like, wow, you know, I'm able to have 
half a dozen of these things and I feel great. Uh, it's, it's light, it's refreshing, and it's very clear. One of the things you see with how British brewers are also marketing themselves, it's kind of highlighting that family-owned brand uh, into the early 20th century. Like if you look at newspapers across the different British colonies, they're going to be advertising for Bass Ale um, or Salts or Allsop Brewers or Truman. And they're going to be advertising for the brand of the beer. You know, they might list, you know, it has Porter, has Brown Ale, has this and that. But in those same advertisements, like pages, you're going to see advertisements for what's on the boat. Well, it's going to be Bavarian style or bottom fermented beer or just lager. There's no brand. It's just an awareness that this beer is going to be consistent regardless of where it's coming from. It's the style that's going to be consistent because the process of that lagering process allows for all that sediment to drop to the bottom. And when you're pulling off from the top, you're going to have that light golden color, and that's it. That lagering process also allows for a beer that's going to be very dense in carbonation because that very long, slow secondary fermentation, that yeast is going to continue to work slowly, just kind of converting, you know, releasing that carbon dioxide, which also acts as a preservative, you know, pushing out any kind of free oxygen that could cause the beer to go bad. And so the beer is going to be something that's tied to, well, if you're German, tied to your home country. But if you're not, it's going to be tied to the latest technology. Uh, It's going to be tied to using mechanized refrigeration. It's going to be tied to, well, the pure yeast revolution that begins in 1883 in Carlsberg, where they're using the same exact yeast. It's not going to be just what's left over after the last brew. It's going to be the same yeast from before. It's going to be consistency that no one could ever match prior to this. The beer is going to be tasting the same. It's going to be wrapped up in kind of what is modern beer. It's new technology. It's new marketing. It's new business practices. It's a new imperial world. And they're able to just look at this beer that's not brown. It's light. It's gold. It's going to be something people are drawn to for that type of you know modern taste all the way through. I mean, even Mark Twain writes about the how great the Pilsner beer is uh, when he, I think it was for Vanity Affair, uh, like wrote a little article about it. I mean, it's, it's across the entire world. People are writing about this at the turn of the 20th century. Well, and those are some very compelling reasons um, why there is such a demand for the beer. And of course, with the technology and the business practices, you've talked us through a supply as well. So Given all of that information you've shared with us, um, obviously a highlights tour of the book. There's lots of cool detail in the book itself. Um, But even with what you've told us here, I think that gives us a pretty good idea of why we can consider Pilsner to be a global beer, why we consider it to be um, significant in terms of technology, taste and empire, as your subtitle suggests. So that leaves me only with my final question. Um, This book is available. It's out. It is done. It is off your desk. Um, Is there anything you might be looking to work on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about beer you'd like to share with us? Ah, well, I'm also a beer journalist. I'm a Boston columnist for Regional Beer Magazine. So I love seeing what people are doing right now. And funny enough, with craft beer uh, in the world right now, you're seeing craft brewers go from the ales, go from the IPAs to their own pilsners, because it's such a difficult beer to make without having that really strong um, 
background and education. So I'm, I'm looking at explain, like ex- just exploring what people have to offer. But I actually have, I've got two articles in the works. One is looking at the history of the IPA, um, kind of the invention of the style. Very, very different from the Pilsner. Uh, much more having to do with impressions of empire and less about a specific style of beer, really. Uh, and then also a history of mechanized refrigeration, um, looking at it from a history of brewing uh, perspective. And well, actually, my next book is going to be something that's kind of fun. This is the book that I feel like I've just needed to get out, uh, which I'm so excited about. And my next one is going to be uh, kind of a COVID memoir. Uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, my wife and I found ourselves taking care of a uh, cabin uh, that my parents own off the coast of Maine on an island. And just uh, kind of talking about the interesting processes of becoming part of a community on an isolated rural patch of ground in the ocean. Well, those all sound like very interesting projects. So best (laughs) of luck with them. And while you are off writing, uh, listeners can, of course, read the book we've been discussing titled Globalization in a Glass, The Rise of Pilsner Beer Through Technology, Taste and Empire, just published from Bloomsbury. Malcolm, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Oh, my pleasure. It's wonderful to talk to you.